Thanks, Mavis. Uh, let's pray as we look at that together. Keep that open. Father, we do thank you for these words, and uh, we ask that you help us understand them this morning and uh, understand what they look like in our lives today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Does anyone need to go to the dentist? One, two. Uh, I apologize. I have a, an unsettling story for you then. A man named Carlos Flores got arrested back in 2008 for practicing dentistry in his New York apartment. Um, he was, he'd moved from um, Ecuador, where he grew up, to New York and set up his own dental practice in his kitchen. Uh, you see, what he did was he, he figured he'd try and help people, but he didn't have a qualification, so to speak. And so he, would, he sort of knew what he was doing. He had some tools and a chair. And so he'd get people to come in, and they would come to his surgery, his kitchen, and he would remove teeth, etc. There was he got he got arrested for doing it because one patient came to him with a tooth that he was trying to extract, but he broke the tooth in half. He didn't get it out properly. The patient went to the hospital where they got it out properly, and then they made a complaint about poor old Carlos. And the cops came and they charged him no dentistry license, no practice. He had tools, to be fair, but. They were in a various state. They, he had the chair, he had the extracting tools. They were all kind of stained with old blood and things like that. It, it wasn't particularly sanitary. And for me, that's all bad. But I think the worst part of the story uh, with Carlos is the way that he used to offer pain relief to his patients. You see, if they had a sore tooth, he would offer them medication for their pain before extracting. Do you know what he used for medication? Anyone want to have a guess? Rum? Very close, wine. He would give them some wine. Here you go, skull this, and then we'll pull your tooth out. Now, I don't know about you, but um, for me, that's probably not the kind of dentist I want to go and visit. If I'm going into their kitchen and there's bloodstained tools everywhere, I'm probably going to leave. Who's with me? Anyone? And that makes you wonder, why would anyone actually go through with it? And what do you reckon? Why would people go to that kind of dentist? It's cheap. And perhaps a question of expectations. Perhaps they've moved to New York from far away. They need some dental work done on the cheap, and they look at it and they go, well, I guess I've seen worse, so let's go. Um, and it, really, what we expect um, shapes the way that we view things. Now, I'm not saying you should go to a dodgy dentist, don't hear me saying that, those who had to go to the dentist, don't do that. Um, but what we see influences what we, how we think things should be. And I want to put it to you that there's no area that that is perhaps more evident than in the area of relationships. Um, we have all manner of relationships that we're all involved in. Um, there's marriage, family, work, friendships, all these kind of relationships. What we see in those relationships shapes the way we think that they should operate and how relationships should be. But we've got to be careful not to visit the uh, dirty dentist of relationships, if I can put it that way. Um, we need to stop and ask ourselves, what is it that actually shapes the way I view relationships or how should I view relationships? And we're in Colossians this morning. We're going to think a bit about relationships um, and I feel like something went a bit wrong in my planning of the preaching roster here because um, Chris is sitting there and he's not preaching this morning and it's a really thorny passage. And so what you normally do is you put the youth minister on and then when people complain, you go, oh, well, he's just learning. It's okay. Um, but I made a boo-boo. I put myself on. No, it's, it's wonderful. It's, a, it's um, a, a wonderful passage to look at. Um, but I don't know what you think as you heard it read out. I don't know what you thought about the passage. If you thought this is a bit controversial, I don't know what you thought as Ben was running through the, um, the competition with the children beforehand and you thought, well, what is this? What's going on here? Some people just want to chop it out, tear it out of the Bible, cross it off with a black pen, be done with it. But I hope that's not our opinion because as we look at it, we're looking at God's word here. 
it actually is going to show us something beautiful, a beautiful picture of how relationships should be. All right? So maybe you feel like they're a bit controversial as verses. Um, but if you think that, I want, to, I want you to expand your mind a bit and realize that they were even more controversial verses when originally written. Because they speak in a shocking way to the first century world that they were written to. And for a different reason that we are shocked by them, perhaps. So look, look at it again, verse 18, chapter 3. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, in the first century world, in Jewish society, how were women viewed? They were viewed as somewhat of a possession, a very special possession, but a possession nonetheless. If you want to get married, how did you get a wife? You went and pretty much bought her. You spoke to the father, right? And you arranged the marriage and then you paid the price and you bought the wife. If you're a father with a daughter, you might hope one day a young man comes along and pays the right number of cows for you or whatever it might be for you to sell your daughter to them. Um, now, he couldn't sell her on again, all right? So she's not that kind of possession. But she was seen as inferior. That was the view. And if you think Jewish society had a bad, what was the broader society of the world that they were living in? Anyone know? If we have Western society today, what was the overwhelming culture back then? I don't know, Greg. Someone's got to know. <laughs> Roman or... It's another word you might put in front of the word Roman. Greco-Roman. That's right. It's a Greco-Roman culture, right? Um, the prevailing sort of Greek thought patterns and Roman thought patterns had sort of made that culture. And in, in many uh, aspects of Greco-Roman society, women were bound in servitude to their husband. And this is worse than the Jewish view. They were, in fact, to, uh, were only allowed to have sexual relations with their husband, but the husband, in some aspects of that society's thinking, were free to go and do what they wanted. Which makes verses 18 and 19 a fairly radical set of verses to look at. And I want to put it to you, the first radical thing in them, and think about this, is who he addresses first. By saying women or wives first, he's actually making a point that women ought to be able to be addressed. It's a tiny statement, isn't it? But it's a statement that they're equal people. And he makes an appeal for them to act, which means that he thinks they have the right to do so. Do you see that? He's writing to a culture of possessions and servitude, and he's saying, no, no, hang on. If he was wanting to endorse that culture, he'd say, husbands, tell your wives to submit. And there wouldn't be a verse 19. So maybe you can see the radical nature of his appeal here. He's assuming that women are free to act, and he's appealing for them to do so as equals here. Now, I wonder, before we go and look at, it, at what it looks like for us today, just what do we think, what do we think Australian culture says to us? Um, what, what are some, some values of the Australian culture? Anyone want to call some out for us? What are the values Australians hold dear? Independence, yep. I think that's a huge one. Freedom, don't you reckon? That's probably the big one I was looking for. Anyone else got one, just before we come back to that, because Myra's already hit the nail on the head for us. Um, what other things do we think of in Australian culture? Anything else? No, Craig, she said the answer. Get on with it. Okay, fine. Uh, independence or freedom. And we think that we're all free and we're all equal, right? Isn't that what we say? All Aussies are equal. But there's something that we think about people up the tree from us. And what's that? We're anti-authoritarian. And, and when you start to boil it down, we actually think that we all have freedom and we're all equal. 
But I think beneath it, we don't, we don't vocalize it, but many, 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 many Aussies think that we all have freedom, but my freedom is more important than your freedom. All right, now just work with me here, just give you some examples. You're driving along the road, and um, someone pulls out, right? They go in the underlane, which, you know, where there's parked cars up ahead to get through the traffic, and then they want to pull back in in front of you. What do you do? Hey? You beep them. Yeah, yeah. Who wants to push in and not let them in? Anyone? Many of us do. But why do they want to come in? What makes them think they have the right to do that? Because their freedoms are more important than your freedoms. Um, think back a little bit. You're queuing at the bank to see the teller. It's a long process, especially these days. There might only be a few left working in Sydney. I'm not sure. And um, you want to go and see the bank teller. And you're standing there for a long time. You've been waiting. And then someone comes and just steps in front of you. They jump the queue. What do you say? Get back in line. Because they think their freedoms are more important than your freedoms. But then you're like, but they're not free to do that either. So my freedoms are more important than your freedoms. See, we talk about our freedoms, but we're actually on about our rights, I think. My rights at the expense, perhaps, of others. So you go to a restaurant, you sit down, you're there with a couple of friends, table of four, another table of four comes in, you make sure you order before they do, so that you get your food first, right? And then their food comes out first. Who's happy with that situation? Not many of us, right? Because I want my rights to be looked after first before somebody else's. And so we get upset when someone tries to jump a queue or push in in traffic. When we go to the shop and we, they, they don't have what we need right now, and we're like, this is not good enough. Someone better go to work, sick or not, to deliver the toilet paper to my local supermarket. Or someone at work gets a promotion and you feel like you deserve it. We're a my rights society, aren't we? We're about independence, individualism. And we say we're all equal, but we think that we're all more equal than each other. All right. Now that carries over into relationships. And so what then happens is in relationships, we think that I'm more important than you are. And it particularly forces way into marriages where instead of looking after each other, we actually try and assert authority over each other. And so then we read this part of Colossians, wives submit to your husbands, and we don't listen to anything else because we think, well, why could he say that? How dare he? Because I've got rights, you know, but we don't stop and do the hard work of figuring out what he's saying. Because it's at odds with what our society tells us, that you need to fight for power. But as I said, it's at least as controversial in the first century as it is now. So what does it mean to submit? And to figure that out, you've got to do a bit of hard work for me here. So I want you to look at the, the passage as a whole, and you'll notice there's three pairs. What are those three pairs that you see in there? Someone call them out there. We should, we should better figure it out. Wives, husbands, children and parents, slaves and masters. Okay. And to each group, he's giving instructions on how to maintain that particular relationship in a godly fashion. And there's a pattern going on. Look at verse 23. He says there, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And so what he's trying to say is that in relationships, we're actually serving Jesus. The way we relate should be about the way that Jesus related to us. The way we treat others should be about the way that he served us and died for us. So that's the hard work bit. So come back to verse 18 and 19 and look at 19. It says here, husbands love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Okay. Take away any preconceived notions. Who thinks that should be par for the course? Anyone? We all do, don't we? Of course it should be, but not the case when it was written. Elsewhere, Paul says, husbands, love your wives 
as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Husbands should be willing to die for their wives. Instead of treating her like a possession or an object or an inferior being, no, 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 don't do that. Treat her as your equal. Love her. Think of her. Be thoughtful. There's no mandate in Scripture to make your wife do what you say. Sadly, that's a, an obscene thing that some people have taken, and they, in the name of God, they try and apply that. It's a misunderstanding, a gross misapplication of what God is saying, a failure to think about what the Scriptures say. Jesus comes willingly to die for us, and husbands should be willing to die for their wives, not because they're going to get something in return, but because they love and care for them and seek to build them up with tender affection, not to tear them down, not to make demands from them. A man named Dr. Robert Seitzer wrote a book, and uh, he, in his book, writes uh, about an incident uh, where he was performing surgery uh, on a woman who had a tumour in her face, and as part of that um, surgery in the face, she had to have a um, facial nerve removed. And the end result of the surgery was that her mouth was distorted. It was in a bit of a sneer at all times. And she's sitting with the doctor in his office there talking about the surgery. It's been a great success, he says. And she says, Doctor, will my mouth always be like this? And he says, yes, because I've had to cut the nerve. And she's sitting there with her husband. And she sits silently. Her husband smiles and says, I like it. It's kind of cute. And he turns to his wife and he kisses her. And as he kisses her, he distorts his mouth to match her uh, distorted mouth and they have this kiss where they he's sneering at her as they're kissing and i don't know what you hear what you think when you hear that story the women all swoon and the men sit back thinking yes if my wife ever had facial surgery that left her mouth twisted you can be darn sure that i would twist my mouth to kiss her that's what we think isn't it of course i'd accommodate my wife if something happened to her it's a great story don't get me wrong but but what colossians is not saying is not saying wives, uh, husbands, if your wife's mouth is crooked, then accommodate her with your kiss. Well, it is saying that, but it's saying so much more. It's saying, what if nothing bad ever happens? What if there's no need to accommodate to a sneer to kiss, so to speak? It's saying, so, it's saying off, put off society's game of seeking power over each other, of seeking authority over each other. Love your wife. Don't be harsh with her. Be gentle. Be kind. And we've got to remind ourselves that love shows itself in action. 1 Corinthians 13, it's a list of actions, right? And so if you're, if you're a husband, how do you act? Do you, do you act? Do you underfunction? Do you tap out emotionally? Do you become passive and avoidant, withdrawn? You feel criticized, perhaps, oh, well, I'm not getting appreciated, so why should I show appreciation? Because I've got my rights too, you know? I think it's not the point, is it? It's not about, it's not about how I'm being treated first, it's about how I'm going to treat others. And so we've got to find ways of demonstrating to our wives that we love them. There's a bunch of stereotypes you could go with, all right? Um, the obvious ones, you know, some blokes need to learn to cook more. Some blokes need to learn to pick their clothes up off the floor, all right? Um, some guys need to learn to take the clothes off the line without being asked first. But th- these are all stereotypes. Maybe there's things about holidays. You're thinking about going away somewhere each year as a family, fantastic. But what about surprising your wife and saying, actually, we've got a two-night getaway, an escape, what about that? I've heard people who do that one. Uh, what, what about if, you, if, you, um, if you've got children stepping in and being consistent, learning how to parent as well? All these kind of things. Are, we've got to be willing to die for our wives, right? If we're willing to die, do the big thing. What about the mundane things? We've got to step in there because that's how we show that we actually do care, that we love. It's a package deal. 
Now, ladies, if that's what the husband is going to be like, what's the call to you? Verse 18, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, it's not a call to inferiority or servanthood. It's not that at all. It's not saying put up with anything your husband's going to do. No, as he's trying to treat you the way Christ loves the church, accept that loving behavior. Don't place aside his game of taking advantage of that, of trying to go, yes, he's willing to do everything, so therefore I will assert my authority over him. Accept the love he's showing you. Love him back. Make it easy for him to serve you in a loving way. At the end of verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Again, there's no command in the Bible for men to tell women how to act, okay? There is genuine abuse that happens uh, in, in marriages, and that's a dreadful and awful thing, and that should not be tolerated. Submission is not about servanthood, okay? That's not it at all. It's about saying, yes, this is my husband. He cares for me. I'll, I'll let him do that. And we think about uh, both men and women. How do we do that in a marriage? You know, criticism is a big one. Um, if I tear someone down enough, it gives me power over them. Withholding communication is a big one too. Passive aggression can lead to contempt. Um, none of us here, I think, can read minds, and yet we expect it from our partner sometimes. Maybe just talk and just say, look, how can I show you that I care? What can I do to demonstrate that I'm considerate of your needs? Because society says it's your rights at the expense of others and God shows us, no, it's not like that at all. Now, if you want to get a good laugh, uh, what you want to do is go and read the things that children write in exams or just Google funny things kids write in exams. I've got a few examples for you here from actual exam papers. What is the spinal cord? The spinal cord is a long bunch of bones. The head sits on the top and you sit on the bottom. All right, so the question of define H2O and CO2. Someone wrote H2O is hot water and CO2 is cold water. Where does dust come from? One of the main causes of dust is the janitor. Sweeps it up everywhere, apparently. Uh, what, uh, give an example of syntax. Syntax is the money collected at church from all the sinners. What is the future tense of I give? I take. How often... Actually, this is from an essay, this one. It's not a direct question. Um, A child wrote, a person should take a bath once in the summer and not so often in the winter. I do wonder what the question that was asking. But who has ever found a child exasperating? Anybody? Just me? And Anne? And Flinders? I hope you haven't got any kids, Flinders, just squally. But... um, (laughs) But we look at 20 and 21, we see the relationship between parents and children. I went for a bit longer the first bit. It's the same principle, right? I can be very brief with it because it's the exact same principle. It's not about seeking to have power over someone else. In the Greek society, kids had less rights than women did, right, in that society. And so what they're saying is it shouldn't be difficult. we shouldn't make it difficult as Christians for them to have faith in Christ. We should show actually Christian care for them as well. Same between parents and children. Same between house owners and their slaves. You see there, um, verse 21, parents shouldn't discourage their children, in, rather encourage them. Um, don't, don't provoke them. Uh, we don't want them discouraged, but build them up instead. And children, you should be obedient to that kind of parent. Masters in, in chapter 4, verse 1, should be fair with their slaves. And why is that? Knowing that you also have a master in heaven. It's a reminder, isn't it? That, you know, okay, you're in a position in society where you have a slave and Unless Paul can change the entire society, which he can't. He's writing this um, from far away. 
then how do we actually exist in that society? He's not saying that slavery is a good thing, but he's saying if you find yourself in that scenario, what do you do? Masters, actually treat them well. Um, treat them well. Be gentle and be kind with them. Love them. Paul writes a letter to a man named Philemon who has had a runaway slave. Uh, very possibly the church at Colossae met in Philemon's house, I'm not sure. Um, in chapter 4, verse 9, we meet the slave who ran away, Onesimus, who Paul calls our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. Paul sends him back. He says, Onesimus, you've got to go back and say sorry to Philemon. And then as he writes the letter to Philemon, he says, let him go. Set him free to go and preach the gospel because this kid has got what it takes. And then he sort of puts the hard word on him and he says, because don't forget, you owe me your very life, Philemon. I think maybe his conversion was at Paul's hands, maybe. But, um, but the point there is, it's the same thing, isn't it? It's not about exerting authority and power over people. It's about saying, actually, no, no, no. How do we actually work together? How do we relate? And, and maybe for us, it relates to the way that we um, interact with our, our bosses at work, although they don't own us. Um, how do you actually deal with them? Do you all sit back and go, <laughs> if the boss is away, you don't do anything? Like, it's just... How do you work? Do you do it when their eye is on you or at all times? Verse 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And then verse 25 is a little bit chilling in in a sense. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. And suddenly we're like, hang on. Does that mean we're going to get judged if if we make a mistake in these things? Are we going to go down? But that's not the point here. He's not saying that. It's a comfort for us. Because if you're in a relationship where it's not going the right way, where you're doing your part and someone else isn't doing their part, uh, if it's abusive, of course, leave that. But if, if it's not like that, if it's just not going well, don't worry, because God has the final say. You won't be looked down on later. God has secured for you your place. And these people will answer to him. They will not get away with it forever. And I find these verses in general fairly challenging to our society because we are about our rights at the expense of others. We struggle and strive for power, particularly in relationships, and it doesn't work well. Our society doesn't know how to have good relationships. But what a relief these verses are because they show us you can have deep and loving relationships in marriage, um, in, in with, with your children or in the workplace, and we can rest assured that those who act outside of the right way, will be dealt with. And so we see in here that Jesus' death on the cross should be the pattern for the way we relate to others. The one who society says is the boss, well, actually, they are the one who can put off their right to that and look out for the rights of others. A man lovingly caring for his wife, a parent being gentle with their children, a boss treating their employees fairly and looking for their benefit. Jesus changes radically the way we should relate. And so we've got to be those who are bold enough to put off what society says and follow him. And take comfort in verse 24. Since you know you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Let me pray that we'll be brave enough to do that. Father, we do thank you for these uh, verses here. We thank you that it is the Lord Christ we are serving in the way we relate to others. Father, help us not to play uh, the games our society plays. And we know there's times that we've all fallen into those traps of wanting our rights at the expense of others. Forgive us those times, Father, and help us to be renewed in our marriages, as parents, in the workplace, and in so many other relationships. Help us to be those who look 
not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.